Um, if you're here for the first time, I just want to welcome you. I, we always are committed to everyone who ever comes into anything that we do. We want people to feel welcome, that we want you to know that this can be a Jesus place for you and that you can come and explore this uh, Christian thing and this Jesus thing with us. And that's what we commit ourselves to in our lives, and that's what we pursue with one another. So that's our passion, and we uh, hope that you know that you're welcome to anything that we do. And uh, if you fill out one of those welcome cards, all we'll use that for is to let you know what we're doing, and we don't do too much. We do the things that we do really well, and uh, we, don't, we won't bombard you with 50 emails a week. Uh, but we, we love living this Jesus thing out together. And so actually, I have something to confess a little bit. Today's message was actually really, really difficult for me. Um, I struggle in finding out how to talk about this because I really do believe that every time we open Scripture together, that it's special and that every part of Scripture has the power to change our lives. But then there are these special occasions in Jesus' life where he does something really special and they just jump out of the page for us. And I really, really do believe and I pray that today is one of those moments in our lives where um, we see something special that Jesus was really, really doing with his disciples. Uh, but before we really dive into that, uh, I want to set something up because we have been in Mark for a long time over a year now, and um, we have never introduced this, so I'm kind of introducing this way into the game, but uh, I think it's pretty valuable. You see, a lot of people categorize Mark and break Mark down into three different acts, and today we can actually celebrate because for the first time we are actually leaving Act 1 of Mark. I know. It took us a year to leave Act 1. But we are on our way, guys. Don't worry. This act is a lot shorter. And so really, in the first act, we see that this guy, who we think most likely was John Mark, was just absolutely consumed with the idea of answering this one question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Who is this man who came here and then all of a sudden started doing all of these amazing things? Who is he? Was he special? Was he something more than just another guy? Was he something more than just another guy from Nazareth? And then we see in Act 2, notice that it's much shorter, only one and a half chapters, uh, that he just, Mark just says, okay, he settles on that question. We know who Jesus is, and then he moves on. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What does it mean for his claim that he is the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of sons, the son of man, the anointed one, all of these titles that we have heard about Jesus, what does it really mean? Because if we don't know what it means, then it probably means very little. And then Act 3 is how does Jesus become king? Now, I don't think that we're really trained to think about it this way, that Jesus in his life earned the title of the Christ. He earned the right to be the Messiah. And so what does Mark have to say about what does it mean or how did he become the king? The one that we gather to this day, that billions of people to this day gather to celebrate this king who promised that he'll be back one day. So what does all of this mean? You know, within all of these acts, within all three acts, there are these uh, quantifiers, there are these 
things, this pattern that keeps on rehappening. It doesn't necessarily always happen in order, but they are in every single act. The one, heavenly voice. Two is an upside-down nature, where Jesus talks about how unexpected the kingdom is, how just utterly bizarre and foreign God's kingdom really is to us. Heavenly science talks about like what accompanies Jesus everywhere that he goes, that every place that he goes, he does something special. Questions, questions about, from the people around him who just utterly don't get it, who over and over and over again are still wrestling with the question that we still wrestle with to this day, who is he? Who is this guy? How can he do this? And then lastly, it's a proclamation of Jesus. Every act has these. We see in Act 1, now that we're leaving, just to like bring some structure into our minds so that we can go forward together, the heavenly voice in Act 1 was during the baptism. You know, when Jesus goes to get baptized, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and then God, the Father's voice rings out and says, uh, this is my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. That's all the way back in chapter 1. That even from the beginning of Jesus' story, the Father was affirming Jesus as who he really was. And then we see here that the upside-down nature, we see it really everywhere, but we especially see it come out when he teaches about the parables, and especially within the parables, the parables about, the nat- about nature, about how the kingdom of God is like a seed that he's planting, and it finds four different types of soils, and only one really grows it, and three reject it, or, they, or it dies. Or how he says that the kingdom of God is like a seed that gets planted and it grows and we don't know how it grows and we are not the ones who grow it, but that somehow in God's wisdom and all of this mess, his kingdom grows from something small and produces beautiful things. And then also how he says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That it's really small, that you will not expect anything big to come out of this but then how when you plant the mustard seed, it grows up and becomes something huge, something that helps a lot of different animals and people with its shade and with the things that come from it. That the, that the nature of God's kingdom to us is really foreign, and it almost always is coming in the ways that we don't expect it to, and actually in the opposite way that we expect it to come in the heavenly signs, and that everywhere Jesus went, he was able to heal. Last week, we talked about the man, uh, the man who Jesus healed who was blind and how Jesus needed to touch him two times, right? And what does that mean? But even in the hardest case of healing, in the end, this person was still healed. And everywhere Jesus went, he healed everyone, and every infirmity answers to him. And deliverance, whenever he came across an unclean spirit, a demon, that it did whatever Jesus told it to, that he had authority. And that he, even forgave, that he even healed people by forgiving their sins. Jesus did things over and over and over again that only the Messiah could do. So Mark was answering this question of who is Jesus? Who is he really? Is, could he really be this one that we've been waiting for? Could he really be the Christ or the Messiah or the Anointed One or the Son of Man? Could he really be that? And then we see the questions over and over and over and over again. We see Jesus wrestling with his disciples for them to truly understand who he is. How many times do you remember hearing Jesus say, are your hearts hardened? Can't you see? Do you not understand? 
And yet, the disciples honestly wrestle over and over again because this is a big thing to wrestle with. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? We see him doing all of these things, but it is so contrary to what we expect God will look like. We have so many questions. And then lastly, last week we heard about the proclamation that Peter made, right? Remember where he uh, took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he brought them to a place of utter spiritual confusion, and he said, who am I? And Peter rightfully said, you are the Christ. And then that really launches us into this new phase of Jesus' ministry, where he, according to Mark, is done proving who he is, though everything he does proves who he is. And now he's moving into the deeper things of what does it mean for you and for me that Jesus is the Christ. And so today we're in Mark, Mark 8. We're also finishing Mark 8, which is awesome. This is the first whole chapter that I've ever led a congregation through. So, man, I feel like we've been in Mark for 17 years. So, praise God. On to a new chapter. So if you want to read with me, we're going to be in Mark 8, 31, all the way until 9, chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, And I'll read it for us. It will be on the screen, too. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of of God after it comes with power. Please pray with me so we can go forward. Lord, um, Lord, uh, we trust you. I trust you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you're big enough and able to prove who you are over and over and over again to us, Lord. I pray that today you start to uh, move us towards understanding more fully what it means for you to be the Christ. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We ask for you to do your work that only you can do. Lord, please shine your wisdom on the things that you did for us so long ago and um, what it means for us today, that we're still waiting on you to come back, that we still have our trust in you and that you are our everything. Lord, if that's not true for us as a church or as individuals, please make that more true today. Lord, we love you. We serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. And so we're going to be in a lot of groups of threes today. Three acts, three parts of this story, and then three closing statements. And so please just bear with me on that. Uh, But the first thing 
that we need to talk about is this idea that Mark said, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Now this is going to be set fully. You know, Jesus is always proving who he is. I've said that already. But now he's starting to address different parts of this thing of living with him. And so the first part I've just been calling the suffering son of man. It's really interesting that last week Peter confesses Jesus, rightfully so, as the Christ. And then this week, Jesus kind of switches his title a little bit and he starts calling himself the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is actually really, really interesting. It's really, really cool title that Jesus held. And it really comes into fruition a lot in the book of Daniel. If you've never read the book of Daniel, I would suggest it because it is crazy. And um, man, it is really interesting. It talks, it's, some of it is biographical, some of it is stories, some of it are visions, some of it is end times and apocalyptic. I would really suggest for you to read, spend some time in Daniel if you've never had. But then the Son of Man really comes into fruition theologically and in, in Israel's history in Daniel chapter 7. It'll be up on the screen, but I'll read it for us now. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like one, one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." I don't know about you, but I love this Son of Man version of Jesus. I really, really love the Son of Man in Daniel. I love how he has total victory, that nothing stands in his way, that he even goes up to the Ancient of Days, and this Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, gives him a kingdom that will never perish, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that is for all peoples, all nations, and all languages. That is the God that we all need, right? Amen. Praise God. That God never is defeated, that he is always winning. But in the life of Jesus, we see a slightly different son of man. We see a son of man who says that he needs to come and suffer. You know, what Jesus does here, the upside-down nature of God's kingdom is that he loved us and creation so much that he came here not to just win, but to win by losing. That the Son of Man needed to come, and that he would have victory, and that everything about him is victorious, but how he would achieve that victory was through suffering. Guys, that's, that's something that will take a second past our lifetime to really understand, to really unpack this is really the calling of your whole life to understand why it is that our Savior came to suffer for us. Why it was that he couldn't just be the Son of Man who never lost anything or who never suffered or who never experienced anything. You know, over the Old Testament, there are glimpses of this Jesus. There are prophecies of this one to come. And they were always talking about someone in the temporal, but it was always also spiritually about Jesus. And even there are other glimpses of him in the Old Testament where he suffered. But this Son of Man, we need to have this Son of Man, and yet we also need to have this suffering Son of Man. Let's read verses 31 and 32 again really quick. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I love this little detail that Mark throws in here, that he, Jesus spoke really plainly, because this was a message that he wanted everyone around him to brutally understand. That he wasn't talking in parables here, he wasn't talking in metaphors, there were no illusions, but he wanted everyone to know that yes, he was the Christ, and yet he had to suffer for them. Today, we need to proclaim that Jesus is triumphant in everything that he does, and that he chose to come down and to suffer for you and for me. I think it's super interesting that he also talks about how he needed to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Part of what makes the kingdom so upside down to us and to our nature is that he just like utterly confounds us all the time. The elders really represent our wives, you know, the experienced ones, the ones who have been around the block a couple of times, the ones who have seen the ups and downs of life. And they really represent our collective wisdom. And our collective wisdom, man, when Jesus came, we couldn't see him. We couldn't see he was really with us. The chief priests, you know, they represent our religion and our religious leaders and how the best of us, the best of our religious, didn't see that Jesus was here when he came. That the Son of Man came and our religious leaders missed him. The scribes, the ones who were who loved God's word so much that they made their life's mission about keeping God's word, meticulously writing down word for word, not changing a single thing, they missed him too. They missed him because of how upside down his nature was to us. They missed that the Son of Man had to come here and suffer for us. They missed it. I think that a lot of this speaks to us as people, as humanity, and how deeply each one of us have been seduced by power and about success. That even in our Christian walk, we're only ever happy if we feel that we are okay or where we should be or in good standing. We are so seduced, all of us, all of our hearts are seduced by power about success. And yet Jesus came and he accomplished, the, he brought the kingdom of God through suffering. That is so backwards to us. If, we, if you get nothing else from today, understand how backwards God's kingdom seems to be to all of us. That it's not always about being on top or being put together, but that the kingdom of God actually grows through risk. It actually grows through hard times. That you're only really worth your weight of gold when you've suffered and been along the block and have tested God's goodness, because his goodness never fails. Amen? I love that we actually needed a savior who didn't come on a stallion, but who came on a donkey and had to suffer for us and had to earn the right to be the Christ by suffering for us. That's something that I don't think we will really understand until we see him face to face, not fully. The second part of this story I've just been calling rebukes for all because, man, the audacity that Peter has here is pretty crazy. If you can read 32 and 33 with me again, it says, and he, took, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he re- rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
You know, one of the really cool uh, metaphors that Jesus uses is that he always says that he's the good shepherd, that he's their shepherd, that a uh, disciple maker is really a shepherd, and that the shepherd walked in front of their flock and led them. And yet G- uh, Peter had the audacity to overreach the guy that he just called the Christ. Mere verses ago, he just confessed that he was the Christ, and yet Peter put himself in front of him, physically took him aside from the other disciples, and started to rebuke him. That, same, that word for rebuke is actually the same exact word in the Greek where Jesus, when Jesus rebukes demons. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> Peter, you were just calling him the Christ, and now you're rebuking him as if he had a demon. And yet Jesus' answer, like it always is, is just utterly perfect. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind, you're setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The reason why this is such a perfect answer is because this is exactly what Jesus said to Satan during his temptation in the desert. And here the idea behind this is that, again, we are so seduced by power. We are so seduced by being victors. We are so seduced by being successful or our idea of that that we often miss what Jesus is doing in the deeper things, in the hard times of life when the kingdom of God is suffering, but yet it's growing. We miss it often. You know, here Jesus is saying that he doesn't need to be popular to grow the kingdom. He's saying that he doesn't need earthly power, and he doesn't need self-promotion to grow the kingdom. That's so backwards to us, guys. Even us, as we think about city life and how we poise ourselves to bring people to Christ, man... God's kingdom grows really backwards sometimes from the way we expect it to. It's really our job to not ever put ourselves in front of Jesus, but to keep him ahead of us and say, Jesus, we'll go wherever you lead us. And that really brings us into the next and the last phase part of the story, where I've been calling it just follow me. Like, how do we do this Christian thing? How do we do this life with Jesus? How do, how do we really go after the deeper things of life? Jesus tells us right here, it's pretty clear. He said this plainly, though it's the, one of the hardest lessons we ever will learn. 34 on it says, And he called the crowd to him, and with his disciples he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me of, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. He gives us three things to do every day for the rest of our lives. The first is deny ourselves, deny himself. And guys, I really feel like I lack this communication ability to really help us to understand this. I really pray that the Holy Spirit makes this known to you in your heart of what this means. But when you deny yourself, when you come into the lineage of believing in Jesus, when you say that Jesus is your Messiah and your Christ and the Son of Man, guess what? Our lives aren't about us anymore. It's really not. When you confess Jesus as your Christ, 
It's about Him. That every part of who we are belongs to Him. That every part of our life is informed by Him. I know that this is a scary message to give in 2020. It's a scary message to give in Jersey City. But really, I think that's kind of a cop-out, because this message is never easy in any generation, in any place. Because our nature is so backwards to the kingdom that it is a lifelong struggle for us to deny ourselves. When you believe in Jesus, your life isn't about you anymore. It's about him. And everything gets to be consumed by him. We're going to talk in a little bit, because we have two more of these really difficult lessons. We're going to talk about what gives Jesus the right to ask these of us soon. But let's just get through these first. The second one is that you have to take up your cross. If anyone who helped to lead you towards Christ ever made you think that this Christ thing wouldn't cost you your life, then they did a poor job with teaching you about who he is. Some of us in the room are being, have been called to live as missionaries in another country, to go to parts of the world where the gospel is not okay or accepted, and you might lose your life there. Some of us are called to stay here in Jersey City and go to neighborhoods that we avoid, neighborhoods that people like us don't go to, neighborhoods that people drive around to avoid. And some of us are called to go and lose our lives and spend the rest of our lives in those neighborhoods. But then also for us who will never be killed for the gospel, it's still a call for us to lose our lives. That again, it's not about you anymore when you come into faith about Jesus, that the consumption of your life for Jesus will include your whole life too, and that if you choose to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for the sake of the gospel, it'll be saved. That's backwards to us. That's really, really backwards to our nature, that we will only really start living when we're actually living to die for Jesus. I, I can tell you, it's still a process, right? I'm not saying that I am any holier than anyone in here. But I remember in, when I moved to Chicago to serve as a missionary, and I remember telling my mentor there, it's like I'm living for the first time, and I think that's true for every single one of us. When you live your life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his gospels, you will start living. But it's also the end of your life. You're marching towards the end. And then lastly, follow me. I love how in the Luke account of this, in Luke 9, if you want to read it, Luke adds the word daily. It's a reminder that this is a daily struggle, that it's a daily surrender, that's a daily wrestling with your heart and your soul to say, hey, yeah, I'm going to deny myself. It's not about me anymore. Or, hey, yeah, this gospel thing is going to cost me my life, and I'm okay with that, and that's actually what I want that it's a daily struggle for us to remind our hearts and our souls of the commitment that we've made to Jesus and to his gospel, that it's a daily reminder that we have to die to ourselves also for one another. Guys, it is not easy. It is not an easy thing. But this is why Jesus can make this call of us. This is why Jesus alone is positioned in a way where this doesn't become abusive. And it comes in the next couple of verses. It says, For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever, I'm not sorry. 
starting at 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is another shout-out to the temptation that Jesus faced, that one of the temptations was that Satan offered him everything that he could see. And yet Jesus' response is, what good is it that you gain everything? If you literally gained everything you've ever wanted today, and yet you lost your soul, you know what Jesus says to you? You've made a bad deal. You know why? Because God so highly values your soul that he so highly thinks of you, not because of you, but because you're his child, or because he loves you and he made you wonderfully. And Jesus is saying that even if you gained the entire world, if somehow Mati became the president of the world tomorrow and ruled over every person on the earth, and yet you, lo- you lost your soul, you've made a bad deal. You've actually lost more than anything that you could have gained. Because what is it, what's the point of trading something eternal, something that has been made in the image of God, for something that will pass away? Like at best, think of something in your life that you really want. At best, how much longer are you going to live? A couple of decades? We'll hold that up against eternity, and you've made a bad deal. You've made a really poor deal. You've been taken advantage of. And so God, Jesus, has the right to ask us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him, because he's the only one who really, truly values us in the way that we were meant to. That this world, that Satan, and that even your flesh does not love you and does not treat you the way that you were meant to be treated, the life that you were meant to live with him in the garden, And Jesus is our way back there. He is our suffering Son of Man, who can take us back into good standing with the Father. You know, there's this also these couple of verses here that because of how backwards I am to God's kingdom, I want to avoid and I don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about this anywhere that I go. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of the Father, with the holy angels. I don't really want to talk about that. I really don't. I don't know how to talk about that yet in my life adequately. I don't. I'll be honest. All I can do right now is hold that against a couple of verses before that and say that Jesus says that you have so much value and that he loves you so much that he was willing to trade his kingdom up in heaven to even take our form as humans. Read Philippians 2. The fact that he even stoops so low to, be, to look like us is insane. But that he would come and suffer for us. That the King of kings, that the Lord of lords, that the one who created everything would let his creation kill him. And that he would accept it for you and for me. And it's driven because he knows your value. He really, really loves you like no one else. And so we have to do something. Mark is begging us to ask this question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? And so we need to do something with this. We need to acknowledge that the cross is not Jesus' downfall, but that it's actually the embodiment of everything that God loves, of his power and his wisdom. Next week we're going to talk about the story called the Transfiguration And it's another really, really special, really dear, really impactful 
thing that Jesus did. It's not more special than all the other things that he did, but it is special. It was a special moment that God ordained. And we're going to talk about how Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory. I won't say more than that. Spoiler alert. Um, But so I want to leave us with a quote and with three closing statements. I read this quote in my preparation, and I just really, really came to enjoy it, and so I wanted to read it. It says, The wisdom of man is perfect folly when it pretends to give measures to the divine counsels. The cross of Christ, the greatest instance of God's power and wisdom, was to some a stumbling block and to others foolishness. I was just recently in an ordination class for our denomination, and we talked about something that I had never even thought about before, and it's how we know that Jesus was resurrected, right? And that he, even in that resurrection state, he talked to a lot of people and he ministered and taught. But how publicly, the last image anyone ever saw of Jesus publicly was him dead on the cross. And it's this idea of... (laughs) Like, Jesus, why would you stoop so low? Why would you say yes to this amount of suffering? Why would you let your creation kill you? And it's because of this, because he so loved you, and he so sees your value, and he so wanted to come and redeem all of creation that he couldn't stay in heaven, or he couldn't do it any other way than him being the one to do this for us. Praise God. There's no other Savior like Jesus. And so these are our three statements. Take these this week and use them to wrestle with your heart and your soul. Use them to accept how backwards and how upside down God's kingdom seems to us sometimes. And then remind your soul, but when it's really backwards, that's when Jesus is really winning. That's when Jesus and when the kingdom of God is really finding healthy fruit, healthy places in your heart. So here are the three statements. One, and the, by the way, these are not original to me. I want to give my pastor friend in Philadelphia credit. These are not original. Uh, no plagiarism here. Um, but it, his statements are, if you would rather save your own life than follow Jesus, you'll ultimately lose both your life and Jesus. That this is what motivates us to be mission-minded, us as individuals to love our God and to serve him every day of our life, but also to bring other people into the family. Because... Man, think about how awful it is to live without Christ and how many billions of people have never even heard his name. This is why we love missions. Two, nothing in this world is more valuable than your soul. Jesus came here to save you in part because he knows that your soul is so valuable to him. There are a lot of other reasons, but one of the main ones is because he so loved you that he said you were worth coming and dying for. Praise God. That's incredible. And then three, in the end, God's approval will matter infinitely more than man's. A lot of people say this in defense that they can live their life whichever way they want, and most likely people who love this are just jerks all the time. But it is true. It doesn't make it untrue. That it doesn't matter how I think of you or how your co-workers think of you or your family who doesn't believe, but it matters what God thinks of you. Yes, we're called to be in community, to live one an- with one another and to love one another and serve one another. But ultimately, it's about what God thinks of you and he thinks a lot of you. Not because you're perfect, but because you're his child. And because he came to die on the cross to bring you into his family. 
And so this is really a struggle that will take one second past your lifetime, a pastor friend of mine used to say. So let's worship him a little bit today before we leave. Let's worship the one who wasn't okay with just waiting in heaven, but who came down here, took our form, suffered for us. Jesus is so in love with you that he expresses it all the time in his story. So let's connect with that a little bit. Let's worship him for what he's done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. And then, uh, yeah, we'll pray at the end.